welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. On this, the occasion of the third anniversary of this humble podcast, I will offer a deep dive into 70s pop. You know, the songs with the hook, the catchy melody... The songs you crank up on the radio or bob your head to in the frozen food aisle of Trader Joe's. Yes, the Carpenters, Barry Manilow, ABBA. We are going there, and we are going there willingly and with pride, damn it. But first, happy anniversary to FTR70. This podcast started because I wanted to make a podcast that I would want to listen to, even if nobody else listened. I had no clue how to make a podcast, so a lot of this has been trial and error and some teacher's instinct. I did hope it would resonate with others for whatever the reason might be, and it has. Positive reviews, uh, people sending messages of support, people sending in cash when they can, and most importantly, enjoying and listening. You can help the show by spreading the word, by leaving a favorable review on your favorite podcast app, and by going to FTR70 clicking on any Patreon link in any of the episodes and making a one-time or a recurring donation to the show. So what does the genre of a song mean anyway? You could argue, by looking at the pop charts here in the early 21st century, that it does not mean as much as it used to, but I don't think it has been rendered completely meaningless yet. In the fall of 2021, two contemporary singers, Brandi Carlisle and Casey Musgrave, both made social media posts to make sure that their fans understood that while they were honored to have been nominated for Grammys, it was not their decision that their respective songs were moved to the pop category. Carlisle's single, Right on Time, is nominated for a 2022 Grammy for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. Musgrave's album, Starcrossed, was moved from country to pop. Carlisle wrote on her Instagram post that Americana was more than a genre, it is a community. And that is the genre that she had hoped that her song would be included in when considered for a Grammy. She wrote, Americana music is the island of the misfit toys. I am such a misfit. This focus, this is me talking, on proper representation of the genre of your music because of who is represented by your genre is a product of the 1970s, as is the resistance by many artists to being classified as pop, which has become its own genre. What's so bad about being called a pop singer or having your songs classified as pop? I say absolutely nothing, but not everyone sees it that way. The truth be told, I can see why whoever makes these Grammy decisions moved Brandi Carlisle's song to pop, If Adele had recorded right on time, this would not even be a debate. But Brandy is disappointed because she didn't make that song for the masses. She made it for her Island of Misfits, and I understand that too. It has long been written in my notes that this episode, whenever it came to be, would be a defense of 70s pop, but I really reconsidered that. I think the word I want here is celebration, because pop music has nothing to defend. I have maintained from the beginning that this podcast would never be about me telling you what is bad or good. You like what you like, and by the very nature of its popularity, 
pop music, 70s pop included, is and was liked. Being good or bad, these are very subjective things. In December of 1980, John Mellencamp, then known as John Cougar Mellencamp, after going by Johnny Cougar, told a reporter for the San Francisco Examiner that the babies were, quote, a bullshit band. He specifically took a shot at this song. Every time I think of you It always turns out good Every time I've held you I thought you understood People say a love like ours Will surely pass But I know a love like ours Will last and last Every Time I Think of You, from the album Head First, which was released in the United States in January 1979. It made it to number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. It was top 10 in Canada. It was top 10 in Australia. In other words, it was popular all around the world. That's John Waite on the lead vocals, and he would go on to have an even bigger hit in 1984 as a solo artist with Missing You. So what to make of this comment from Mellencamp, who, by the way, uh, thought that his own hits from 1980, This Time, and Ain't Even Done With The Night were what he called stupid little pop records. I think he's coming from the same general place that Brandy Carlisle is coming from, in that he wanted to make rock music, music for a specific group, but thought that he and the babies were falling short. Now, I've been at a Mellencamp concert where everyone sang along to Ain't Even Done With The Night, and they had a lot of fun doing it. Is that not enough? It could be, but it requires a shift in perspective of what these stupid little pop records mean to us, the listeners. I'm going to borrow a thought from Greg Shaw, who wrote an essay called In Defense of Rock Theory in 1977. Greg Shaw made a career out of writing about what he loved, music. And he started as a zine that kind of paved the way for Rolling Stone and Cream Magazine. This is what he said. I don't think there's any great meaning, capitalized intentionally, in rock and roll. And I have little patience with those who seek it in Dylan's lyrics or the lost chords of the Moody Blues. He goes on to say that his love for rock comes from the experience and how it makes him feel. Look, I think sometimes the pursuit of meaning in songs is important. Otherwise, why would I even have a podcast like this? But sometimes just the existence of the song is enough. And it is always true that once art is released into the world, those of us who receive it get to decide its meaning for us. And that is enough. So many of you have told me about the meaning of music for you 
and if you were alive in the 70s, what those specific songs meant. Some of you forgot until you heard the music again. That, friends, is the beauty of pop, because it does find us, whether we seek it or not. It worms its way into the soundtrack of our lives. It finds us, and we get to assign meaning on a wide spectrum from it's just fun to, oh my God, how will I ever get over this breakup? Thank God Carol King is here to write about it because she must have written this song just for me. What is pop anyway? A check of the Billboard Hot 100 throughout the 70s is no help because it's just a free-for-all of rock and R&B and funk and disco and country and country-ish and bubblegum and glam. A journalist who was born in the 70s, 1976, named Kalifa Sine, has written a fabulous new book on music genres called Major Labels, A History of Popular, Popular Music in Seven Genres. If you are into music history, you definitely should check the book out. In it, Sine correctly observes this about pop music in the 70s, and I quote, In the 70s, the pop consensus began to fray. Increasingly, the word pop became negative, end quote. That may seem obvious now, but keep in mind that in the 1960s, pop music referred to music for younger people. So, for example, the Rolling Stones might have been referred to and were referred to as a pop music group. Sine also points out that in the 70s, pop often referred to the absence of something, like a song is not enough rock or enough R&B or enough disco. When that happened, pop became its own genre. So when the Grammys told Brandi Carlile that her song is not Americana enough, which was not even a genre in the 70s, and Casey Musgrave that her whole album is not country enough, the artists were quick to reassure their fans that they were not the ones abandoning their chosen communities. Can pop represent a community too? Maybe. It is so wide-reaching that it may be harder to get that specific. Remember, these are often the songs that find us rather than us seeking them out in a way that we might search for the latest work by a specific artist or what's new in punk rock or something like that. One of my favorite pop songs was recorded before I was even born, but I have a very clear memory of that song being sung on TV when I was gathered with friends in college. Some of you might remember this too. So I was watching Late Night with David Letterman on November 13th, 1987, when Sonny and Cher reunited, and then they held hands and they sang, I Got You, Babe, the very epitome of a pop song. My friends and I did not want to just see Sonny and Cher reunite on Letterman. We had to hear them sing, I Got You, Babe. How much had happened in the years between I Got You Babe's release in 1965 and that moment on late night TV in 1987? Six years after I Got You Babe in 1971, Sonny and Cher were in year four of being without a record label and two years into their official marriage. They were unofficially married in 1964 when Sonny was 29 and Cher was 18. In 1971, they were fighting for the survival of their careers. They were playing live shows, but they were never going to get another hit if they didn't have a label. 
Sonny worked to at least get share a deal, which he was able to do with Cap Records, soon to be MCA. A stipulation in that deal, though, was that Sonny, who was known to be very controlling of Cher's career, could not be involved in her solo career. Her new producer was their neighbor, Snuff Garrett, who wanted to change Cher's image and attract a more adult audience. The trilogy of number one songs, beginning with Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, did just that by taking on issues of race and sexuality and social class. Half-Breed, from the 1973 album of the same name, opens with, My father married a pure Cherokee. My mother's people were ashamed of me. The Indians said I was white by law. The white man always called me Indian squaw. Dark Lady, from the same album, is a murder ballad. The Dark Lady is a fortune teller who is killed for having an affair with her customer's boyfriend. Mitchell Morris claims in the book Persistence of Sentiment, which is a much more academic look of some of the popular songs of the 70s, that we kind of want these songs to be about Cher, as if she is narrating songs about her own life. Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves begins like this. I was born in the wagon of a traveling show. My mama used to dance for the money they'd throw. Papa would do whatever he could, preach a little gospel, sell a couple bottles of Dr. Good. Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves is about the immigrant family of a 16-year-old girl that travels through the southern United States as part of a medicine medicine show in the late 19th century. Medicine shows were traveling music shows that also sold some kind of a miracle cure for disease, which was often just whiskey or brandy or something like that. The family was considered outcasts who did whatever was necessary to survive. That might include prostitution, for which the men would, quote, lay their money down at night, but scorn the family in the morning. The second verse alludes to sex between a 21-year-old man and our 16-year-old narrator. Is he the one who gets our narrator pregnant? Maybe, but we do know the cycle continues, and now her daughter is the one born in the wagon of a traveling show, and the cycle of poverty continues, just as it did for other families. Tramps and Thieves. I don't think the song was a hit because of the lyrics. I think it was a hit because it's catchy. And maybe Mitchell Morris was right, though. We want it to be about Cher, so we just make it about her. And her voice was so smoky, and she seemed so badass, and we were always made aware that Cher was not born privileged. So it all seemed very plausible. We wanted to see Cher tease Sonny, on the Sonny and Cher comedy hour in the 70s. 
we could see her as this dark lady. Cher is a star today, but understand this. She had to fall before she could rise again. She fell in the late 70s, and if she was in the press at all, it was usually because of the drama with her husband, Greg Allman, of the Allman Brothers Band. So when Cher was nominated for an Academy Award and won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress in 1983 for Silkwood, and then won the Academy Award for her role in Moonstruck in 1988, well, I think a lot of people saw the characters in this trilogy of songs as being kind of morphed into a character called Cher, and that is who won. So when she began dating much younger men and tattooing her body and wearing costumes with her ass hanging out in her 40s, and she sold 11 billion copies of Believe in the late 90s, which sure sounds like it would be at home in the 70s to me, a lot of us were saying, damn right she is. In 2017, music journalist Rob Tannenbaum wrote perhaps the best assessment of gypsies, tramps, and thieves in existence. He made the case for why it is one of the greatest songs in the whole 20th century. He wrote, it is voyeuristic, like a pulp novel, exploitative, like a lifetime movie, and redeemed by the brash confidence Cher gives the narrator. Songwriter Bob Stone packs the song with plot, detail, and emotional complexity, and Cher belts it with a punkish defiance as a song about prejudice, poverty, and the consequences of pregnancy for working-class women, Gypsies has aged beautifully. And I don't think I could say it any better than Rob said it. Cher was not the only contralto pop star on the charts in the 1970s, but in comparing image, there was little, if anything, similar to Karen Carpenter. The rock critic Lester Bangs was given the task of reviewing a concert by the Carpenters in 1971. The Carpenters were the brother and sister duo Karen and Richard from white suburbia in California. It is predictable that he did not enjoy the show, but it was not so much the music as it was the stage presence or lack thereof of the band and the laid back attitude of the concert goers. He actually liked the song We've Only Just Begun. And he described the body of work by Karen and Richard Carpenter as being like ice cream, quote, pleasant and mildly bracing. Look, the Carpenters were not cool, and they knew it. It certainly didn't help that they visited Richard Nixon at the White House in 1973. They were presented as wholesome and good, and they got sick of it. Richard was sick of smiling, but you have to give the people what they want. One of the reasons for the popularity of the Carpenters was that they were so non-controversial, although we know that as individuals, as humans, they both had their demons. John Bettis, who wrote Top of the World, said in a documentary for BBC in 2002 that in the 70s, everyone was dying to be someone else, something else. But Richard said of the Carpenters, we were white, middle-class American kids. We wrote like that, we sang like that, we dressed like that, we lived like that. He just took issue with the criticism that their music was boring. He was the one who selected and arranged their songs, and he didn't like that. He said in 1973, we're pop, but we're not that kind of bland, unimaginative pop music. There's a video clip on YouTube of Karen playing the drums, 
while she sings Superstar on the Carol Burnett show. All you band geeks out there, Karen is your people. She was in the marching band in high school. It's mesmerizing to watch this clip. She seems lost in that song. Superstar was written in 1969 by Bonnie Bramlett and Leon Russell. It was originally called Groupie because that is what it's about. Bonnie Bramlett is probably more known uh, to a lot of 60s music fans as half of the husband and wife duo, Bonnie and Delaney. If you watched the sitcom Roseanne in the 90s, you saw her play Bonnie Watkins, a friend and coffee shop co-worker to Roseanne. Linda Perry, a singer, writer, producer, said that the only singer she can compare to Karen Carpenter is Patsy Cline, and they both sang with emotion that Perry called struggle and depression. Much of the praise you hear and read about Karen is that she sang with such emotion, just as much of the criticism of her was that she didn't. Eric Lott, a professor and cultural historian, wrote in 2008 that her voice was unmatched in its ability to, su- to summon a languid melancholy that is somehow at the same time evacuated of personality. Richard Carpenter said that he actually could not say all of these years later that Karen lost herself in the music because she could just walk in the studio and nail it in one take. On the other hand, John Lennon went so far as to stop her in a restaurant to tell her what a fabulous voice she had. I don't know. I mean, was she just this good of an actress? Maybe she just made it all look too easy, like the baseball player who's so smooth that he doesn't look like he's hustling. When asked about Superstar, Karen said that she had not had that experience, but she knew groupies, and she knew how lonely they were. She sure sang like she understood it. Here is track one of side two of the 1971 self-titled album from The Carpenters. to describe that voice. Uh, To say it's beautiful doesn't quite seem to do it justice. I like what Chris Jones wrote a few years ago. Until recently, he was the theater critic for the Chicago Tribune, but now he's an editor. He described it like this. Carpenter sang without attitude, but also without excessive sentiment. In other words, 
Her voice was at once incredibly beautiful and strikingly neutral. Yes, I think that's it. Richard changed the lyrics a bit on that song, by the way, from I can't wait to sleep with you again, and it became I can't wait to be with you again. Karen read the revisions off a napkin, recorded it in one take, and boom, pop classic. It made it to number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in October 1971, and it sold a million records in eight weeks. If you want to know, by the way, what kept Superstar out of the number one slot, it was Maggie May by Rod Stewart. Speaking of uncool pop singers of the 1970s, it is interesting that a guy who performed shirtless at the Continental Baths in New York, surrounded by nearly naked gay men, ended up with such a conventional career. That seemed to be by design. Barry Manilow kept his private life private. Really private. So much so that a lot of people were surprised when in 2014, at the age of 73, he came out and announced that he was married to his manager, a man, and they had been together since 1978. He said it took him that long to come out because he didn't want to disappoint his fans. I get that. Such was life for gay entertainers in the 70s, and for that matter, the 80s and 90s. Yes, many of Barry's fans have always been middle-aged women, and yes, many people already suspected that he is gay. But, well, you know, it's kind of like with Liberace. People see what they want to see. Manilow was a jazz-influenced jingle writer, so maybe this was your first exposure to his work. I am stuck on Band-Aid, because Band-Aid stuck on me. I am stuck on Band-Aid, because Band-Aid stuck on me. Because they really stick to your fingers, and they stick on Band-Aid knees. Remember, only Johnson & Johnson makes Band-Aid brand adhesive bandages with the unique Super Stick adhesive. Depend on the protection of America's number one bandage. I am stuck on Band-Aid, because Band-Aid stuck on me. There you have it. Terry Garr and John Travolta are both in that Band-Aid commercial. How 70s is that? Uh, Barry Manilow also wrote the State Farm jingle. He wrote You Deserve a Break Today for McDonald's. You know, jingle writers, they write hooks, and he was able to replicate that in his pop songs. His songs are sentimental and unoffensive, which is what drew a lot of those female fans. Robert Hilburn wrote a review of the opening night of a seven-night run of Manilow concerts at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles in 1978 and predictably said it was plain and bland and blah, 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 blah. But he also said that he didn't blame Manilow, who was, quote, the beneficiary of the public's renewed fondness for simple, unprobing artists. To me, that sounds a bit like the public is not sophisticated enough to realize that they should not like Barry Manilow's music. And the public responded predictably by writing in and raking Hilburn over the coals, although some agreed with him. I thought that this was an interesting comment, though. An artist does not have to be, quote, heavy to conjure up thoughts and emotions. Manilow reaches into all of us, and maybe the supposed commentary and bite of Bob Dylan, etc., is something we have grown tired of or have outgrown. Moods of people change, and the Dylan era represents years past. And that's from Barry W. Crown of Sherman Oaks. In episode 31, The Spirit of 76, I talked a bit about how collectively 
Americans were worn out by the chaos of the previous 10 to 15 years. At least the adults were. And maybe Barry W. Crown of Sherman Oaks was right. They were tired of the commentary, tired of assessing and analyzing the news. I don't think you really see that biting commentary in music return until hip-hop goes there in the 80s, as do some of the Heartland rockers like the aforementioned John Mellencamp. I've not been to a Barry Manilow show, so if you have, just you know, write in and let me know uh, what it's like. What's the song or songs that get the most reaction? The one that everyone starts clapping for or they all stand up and sing along. I have to believe that the opening notes to Could It Be Magic must evoke some kind of reaction, like when Elton John plays the opening notes of Benny and the Jets. For you classical music buffs, the opening to Could It Be Magic is from Chopin's C minor prelude, opus 28, number 20. Barry then borrowed the style of Hey Jude by the Beatles because I shall directly quote, It should build and build until you think you can't take it anymore. It should be a musical orgasm. Well, I will let you be the judge of that for yourself. Here's a bit of Could It Be Magic. Spirit, move me Every time I'm near you Whirling like a cyclone In my mind Sweet Melissa Angel of my lifetime Answer to all answers I can find Baby, I love you Come 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 into my people named Melissa had Could It Be Magic sung to them or dedicated to them on the radio in 1975. I bet a lot. He might have been referring to Melissa Manchester, but as Chuck Klosterman said in what he called the Carly Simon principle, the fact that there could be some biographical truth in the song makes us like the song even better because it seems so sincere or authentic. Now, remember, Barry said that he was borrowing from Hey Jude, and he wanted this song to be like a musical orgasm. Uh, so here's the here's the big finish. I'll let you be the judge. Come into my arms. Let me know the wonder of all of you. And baby, I want you now, 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 and hold on fast. Could this
see it. Now that I know what he was going for, I can definitely see it. Whatever your assessment, uh, could it be magic? Made it to number six in the Billboard Hot 100 in 1975. Now, if you wanted to write a song with some commentary in the mid-70s, post-Watergate, post-Vietnam War, one way to do it was to disguise it as a pop song. That is what War did with Why Can't We Be Friends. War is not a pop band, but it is hard to exactly describe just what they are because they incorporated so many different sounds, funk, soul, they could be jazzy, uh, they could incorporate rock. In 1973, they had a hit with the Cisco Kid, and in 1975, War re- released the album Why Can't We Be Friends, which included another one of their hit singles, Low Rider. Why Can't We Be Friends is a wonderful stew of reggae and funk and R&B and pop. It feels upbeat, it feels happy, and the message is positive, so much so, that in July 1975, when the American spacecraft, the Apollo, and the Russian spacecraft, Soyuz, docked together to take part in the first manned international space mission, this is the song that played in outer space. America and its dreaded rival, the communists from Russia, working together, ignoring the nuclear missiles pointed at each other with Why Can't We Be Friends playing in the background. The drummer for war, Harold Brown, said he got the idea for the song when they were traveling in Japan in the early 70s. We're all connected by language, he said, and by our food and by our culture. Most racists don't know why they are racist. But you pick them up, and take them over and drop them in a country like India or Pakistan, and guess what? Why can't we be friends? Because all of a sudden you find out we're more alike inside than we are on the outside. Why Can't We Be Friends by War, released in April 1975, made it to number six on the Billboard Hot 100. Papa D. Allen, a percussionist for War, said in an interview that summer, in the last year, we've gone back to the streets and done a lot of listening. We feel the world is a little different now. People don't expect love to conquer, but at least why can't we be friends? We heard the message and we put it on tape. And we're trying to make this a universal anthem. Maybe love 
can come later. Way back in episode eight, the Gay Pride episode, I talked briefly about Dancing Queen by ABBA, but a song that good, well, it is okay if we are not quite done with it. Really, what happens at a party or a wedding or something when everyone hears the opening notes to Dancing Queen? I mean, everybody jumps up, right? Tim Jones wrote for The Guardian in 2016 that Dancing Queen is the best pop song ever. From the opening piano roll to the fade out of the the last Diggin' the Dancing Queen, and he offers Pete Waterman's theory for what makes this happy, highly produced song about dancing better than most, if not all. Pete Waterman, a highly regarded and highly successful producer and songwriter, probably more well-known in England than in the U.S., said it exemplifies how the best Swedish artists are able to soak up popular trends and regurgitate them as something fresh. Quote, listening to Dancing Queen, and you can hear Elton John straight away. You can hear the Beatles. Disco is coming along with the Bee Gees, and you can hear that, he says. It's also got what all great pop songs have, a great first line. Yes, like I was born in the wagon of a traveling show, or long ago and so far away, I fell in love with you before the second show. It also does not hurt that Abba's Agneta Falskog has a voice that rivals Karen Carpenter for pop perfection, despite what critics like Professor Lott might have to say about it. And like a great pop song does, it casts a wide net. This time it's about losing yourself dancing, especially when there is nothing else to do. Tom Bryan, who writes the Stereo Gum Number no. 1 series, is as enthusiastic about Dancing Queen as Tim Jones. He said Dancing Queen only works if Lingstad and Falzgog put everything into the song. You can't be neutral with Dancing Queen. You have to belt it, and you have to put feeling into it. Dancing Queen isn't a song about apocalypse or even about romantic desolation. It's just about a night in a nightclub. But if you're 17, if a nightclub is the only place where you really feel at home, then the importance of that night is massive and all-consuming. It obliterates everything else.
Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, ABBA. That was ABBA's only number one hit, and it went to number one in 1976. It was uncool to like ABBA longer than it has been cool. Is it? It's cool now, right? I think so. And even Arizona Senator John McCain was taken to task for being a fan when he admitted it back in 2008 when he was running for president. He made headlines for defending ABBA by saying, if they are so bad, why are they so popular? Well, I mean, popularity does not equal good on its own, but it does suggest that there is some redeeming value to a lot of people. You may not like it, but it's hard to outright dismiss something that has so many other people liking it. Casey Kasem, who hosted American Top 40 for so many years, said that if a song made the top 40 and he didn't understand the popularity behind it, he tried to understand why it was so popular rather than just labeling it as bad. He assumed that he was missing something and tried to figure out what it was. I am going to preface everything I say about Andrew Roy Gibb by saying that, like many preteen girls of the late 1970s, I worshipped at the altar of Andy Gibb. Yeah, I liked Sean Cassidy, and I thought Leif Garrett was cute, but Andy Gibb, the wavy hair, the satin jacket, the smile, I would put his 45s on my record player and just gaze at his picture on the cover of Tiger Beat. So am I a bit biased? You are damn right I am. I will also say that if you wanted to be a pop star and sell a lot of records in the second half of the 1970s, and if you were going to have brothers in the music industry, I don't think you could have done any better than being the brother of the Bee Gees. It has been often discussed on this very podcast that they were Billboard Top 40 giants. They dominated in ways that very, very, very few other acts have. So, Andy Gibb, congratulations on being in the right family tree. Also, it did not hurt that he looked a lot like Barry. Go look at photos of a 20-year-old Barry Gibb. He and Andy look just alike. So when Big Bro Barry says he's going to help you out with writing a couple of songs, and he'll even sing on them too, you say thank you very much, and you start practicing your best teen magazine smile. For that matter, if you happen to be recording your debut album in the same Miami studio where the Eagles are recording Hotel California, and Joe Walsh is willing to play on I Just Want to Be Your Everything and Love is Thicker Than Water, you don't say no, right? Andy said he wanted his Flowing Rivers album to sound like Hotel California. You might laugh at this, but go check out a song called In the End, and you know what? I can hear a bit of Eagles' influence in there. Now, the hit singles absolutely did not sound like Hotel California, but they did sound like a Bee Gees album, which was okay too. I'm not sure if Andy meant it when he said he was willing to give up his solo career to be the fourth Bee Gees or not. Certainly by the early 80s, when he was no longer a teen idol and he wasn't selling records and he was dating, then not dating, Victoria Principal, who was on one of the most popular TV shows on the planet, Dallas. He was saying that he needed to do his own thing. He didn't want Barry to produce his records anymore, and he was tired of being an offshoot of the Bee Gees. But for a while it lasted, he was one of the biggest stars in the music world. He said that he and his brother made music that was happy. His first three singles went to number one, I Just Want to Be Your Everything, 1977, Love is Thicker Than Water, 1977, and Shadow Dancing, 1978, made a lot of people, especially adolescents, happy. 
Barry Gibb wrote, I just want to be your everything and love is thicker than water in the same session. Andy commented that it is difficult to write with Barry, but Andy did contribute the title. Well, some of the title to love is thicker than water. He contributed the thicker than water part. Then Barry was off and wrote the song in less time than it took to watch an episode of Happy Days or Laverne and Shirley. Tom, Tom Bryan points out in his Stereo Gum article about the song that we get a glimpse of the future in this song, courtesy of Joe Walsh's guitar and the synthesizers. We can see the 80s from here. With Big Brother Barry providing backup, Andy had his second number one pop hit with Love is Thicker Than Water. Love takes me back. That song hit number one on the last day of Andy Gibbs' teenage years on March 4th, 1978. In a few weeks, Andy would be a daddy. In a few weeks after that, he would be divorced. The 11-year-old me was glad to not know those things, as they would have disrupted my daydreams a bit too much. Actual Jeopardy question from Alex Trebek. Name the girl in this hit by The Knack who made Doug Figer's Motor Run My Motor Run. Who is... Sharona. If we could see the 80s from Love is Thicker Than Water, then I think we were waiting in the waters of the 80s with My Sharona, which is a pop song in the same vein as hits by the Cars a year earlier. New Wave had arrived, and this style of pop was different than the pop songs of the first half of the decade. This is what Billy Joel said about it in 1980. Rock and roll, pop, funk, they can all be so many things both reflective and reactive. But let's remember the essence of popular music. A song comes on. What do you hear first? Words? Nah. You hear a beat, then a melody. Take my Sharona. If you really like the song, then you took the time to dig out the words and their pubescent Dumbo words, but they fit the song. Ah, yes, the lyrics. Never gonna stop, give it up, such a dirty mind, always get it up for the touch of the younger kind. Yes, that is a bit creepy. And this was pointed out by many people in 1979, too. This is not a matter of, well, times were different then. Sharona is a real person. She was 17 when 25-year-old Doug Viger saw her while in the company of his girlfriend and proceeded to lose his mind over her. When she was 19... He had finally convinced her to dump her boyfriend and go out with him. For a couple of years, Sharona lived the rock star lifestyle and toured with the Knack. She described that time as magical. She also said that he really meant the my part of my Sharona. 
and was too possessive for them to remain in a relationship like that. So they stopped dating when she was 21. They remained friends, though. She has been a successful real estate agent in Los Angeles for many years. In her web address, it's my Sharona, of course. Imagine asking your realtor if she is that Sharona, and she said yes. So when Doug died in 2012, Sharona actually saw him in his final days. The song is high on the raunch factor. In the middle-aged me raises my eyebrows at what the adolescent me loved. Yes, I knew it was raunchy in 1979, but there it was on the radio all the time. And I didn't know the backstory then. For all I knew, our song's narrator was the younger kind too. Doug said this to Rolling Stone in 2012. Sharona was 17. I was 25 when I wrote that song. But the song was written from the perspective of a 14-year-old boy. It's just an honest song about a 14-year-old boy. Maybe he was just bullshitting us on that, but I'm not ready to cancel my Sharona. And it doesn't seem that Sharona would want that either. I think the appeal in my Sharona in 1979, when the song was here, there, everywhere that summer, it's not just about the lyrics and maybe not even mostly about the lyrics. The opening guitar riff, the drum hook, the bouncy beat, it was power pop at its best. It's like Billy Joel said, it's all about the beat. made it to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in August 1979. And yes, that is Sharona in the white tank top and Levi's on the cover of the 45 sleeve for Good Girls Don't, which also had to make some parents cringe. Uh, it made it to number 11, Girl, Good Girls Don't. And that was pretty much it for the knack. They still made music, but they would never, ever have a hit like My Sharona again. This pursuit of the capital M meaning in music can at times be worthwhile and even necessary. It can also obscure the most important part of music, how it makes you feel. Ultimately, that is always one of the most important reasons that art is created, to make you feel something. Think about your favorite songs. How do you feel when you hear them? Do you want to dance, cry, make out with someone, make a sign, join a protest? What? The answer is different for everyone, but I maintain that each one of those songs has meaning. 
That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. All of my sources are on ftr70.com. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Hey, if you like what you hear, tell someone. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>